Oh, hey, thanks for listening. Before we begin, I have a quick shout out to Catherine and Jasara for becoming patrons of the show. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Jasara. They signed up to become members of the Future Hindsight Civics Club, and you can too. Go to patreon.com backslash future hindsight. Being civically engaged is so important right now, and we want to help you go deeper. That's why we created the Civics Club. You can hear from our guests on what inspires them and what can inspire you too. Visit patreon.com backslash future hindsight and a personal shout out could soon be coming your way. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Alexander Hurdle Fernandez. He's the author of State Capture, how conservative activists, big businesses, and wealthy donors reshaped the American states and the nation. He's also associate professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, who studies lobbying, inequality, and public policy. We'll be talking about why and how conservatives have been successful in reshaping the political terrain across U.S. states in recent years, with a special focus on three powerful conservative interest groups. The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, the State Policy Network, or SPN, and Americans for Prosperity, or AFP. They support each other in pursuit of common policy objectives in state legislatures. State governments play an enormously important role in American politics. For instance, it's state governments, not the federal government, that play a major role in setting labor standards around the minimum wage. Similarly, states control levers around health insurance. States are the key actors in implementing the Affordable Care Act. And lastly, states are in charge of administering elections. We discuss the strategy of conservatives to build political power, through capturing state governments and implementing policies to change not only social and economic outcomes, but more importantly, to make it easier to win elections and weaken political opponents. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. In your book, State Capture, you analyzed how the troika of ALEC, SPN, and AFP built political power. I think maybe a good way to start is to define state capture. Thanks for having me on to discuss this question of power building, because I think it's so crucial to understanding why conservatives, and especially the organizations you mentioned, have been quite successful in reshaping political terrain across the states in recent years. And state capture refers to the idea that a set of organizations, a movement, can capture political office and redirect the resources of government, the decisions made by government, to benefit their interests. In my use in the book, it simply describes the fact that a concentrated group of organized interests, wealthy individuals, have used state levers of power to reshape governance. Why would an organization or political party want to capture state government? Because I think that's also not 100% understood by people who are casual observers. 
State governments play an enormously important role in American politics, and especially in the current era. They control a variety of levers that directly shape the experiences that everyday Americans experience in their daily lives. So for instance, it's state governments, not the federal government, that play a major role in setting labor standards around the minimum wage, given that Congress has declined to address the minimum wage for over a decade now. The decisions made by states determine how much someone can get paid. Similarly, states control levers around health insurance. States are the key actors in implementing the Affordable Care Act. So whether or not you and your family can get affordable health insurance coverage, that's a state-level decision, not a federal one. And lastly, states are in charge of administering elections. I think that's something that more and more people are discovering these days as some states move in the direction of California, Colorado, Washington, and are making it easier for people to vote, not just in the pandemic, but more generally, for instance, registering everyone to vote or allowing people to vote by mail. At the same time, a number of states are moving in an opposite direction to curtail voting rights and make it harder for people to participate in politics. And that matters, of course, not just for state level decisions, but for politics as a whole. So what you did really well in your book is explain how the troika of ALEC, SPN and AFP build power. Can you explain who they are? Who is ALEC and how does this organization relate to SPN and finally to AFP? So the Troika refers to a set of three organizations, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity. They are separate organizations that are involved in different aspects of state policy and politics. But what makes them so effective is that over time, they have each carved out a different comparative advantage in the states. So the American Legislative Exchange Council is the oldest of the three organizations operating since the 1970s, and it's carved out the niche of working with state lawmakers to give them ideas for legislation, to give them supports that they need to move that legislation through government, and then also provides support for lawmakers after they've introduced and passed those bills. So ALEC, if you will, works inside of state legislatures. The State Policy Network is a newer organization, really got off the ground in the 80s and grew in the 90s and especially the early 2000s, and it provides support outside of the legislature. It's a network of state-level think tanks that produce research reports, give legislative testimony, sometimes conduct polling and bring lawsuits, and they focus on conservative pro-business issues like the ones that ALEC tends to prioritize in the legislation that it develops for lawmakers. The last member of the Troika is the newest, but in many ways has grown to be one of the most significant, and that's Americans for Prosperity, which is an organization at the heart of the political network directed by Charles uh, and David Koch. Americans for Prosperity is something like a political party in the sense that it has a federated structure. There are state offices, local offices, national offices, all working together, and it's involved in both elections and governance. It tries to elect very conservative lawmakers to all levels of government, from city councils to state legislatures, even to Congress and the presidency. It also tries to shape what those lawmakers do once in office, and they put outside pressure on lawmakers to pursue the same sort of conservative pro-business priorities that ALEC and the State Policy Network also pursue. So you can see that each of the three organizations has a different set of strategies, but they're pushing generally in the same direction for pro-business conservative priorities. It's important to note that on the whole, they're working together with some important exceptions. 
One of the things that I think is really interesting about Alec is the way that they were able to get state lawmakers to become members and rely on them for writing bills and essentially have structural support in the face of lack of state funding for staff, even for their own salary, offices, time, all this kind of stuff. So exactly how does ALEC provide this kind of service to legislators who are under-resourced? Alec correctly recognized that a key weakness of state legislatures now and certainly in the past is that many operate without much in the way of staff support or resources, even salary for their elected officials. This isn't a widely known fact, but in most states, lawmakers are lucky if they get one, maybe even two staffers who can help them develop legislation, do the immense amount of research that's necessary to figure out how to write that legislation properly so that it addresses the problems that you want to address and that it takes into account the specific context of your state. And lawmakers have to do all of this while making pretty paltry salaries in many states states lawmakers are paid around or just under $20,000 a year. And so that means that many lawmakers have to have second or even third jobs working outside of the legislature, which of course gives them less time to think about legislating. And on top of all of that, many legislatures meet relatively infrequently, maybe three, four, five, six months a year. When legislatures are in session, it's sort of a mad rush with everyone dashing to try and develop and pass the legislation that they want to see get done. So under those circumstances, if you are a relatively new lawmaker, you don't have that many staff, and you don't have a lot of time to think about legislation, well, imagine if an organization came along and said, Um, We know you're generally conservative, but you may not have a good idea of which bills to prioritize. We can come up with those bills for you. We'll even give you the exact text of the bill, the exact language that you can use, and you can simply just insert your state name and introduce it under your own name in the legislature. And of course, when that bill is introduced, we're going to give you the research reports, the evidence, the talking points that you need to really push that through the legislature. And that's exactly what Alec did. It recognized this weakness of state legislatures and provided a valuable service that lawmakers otherwise lacked. And I'm happy to talk more, too, about the research methods that I use to pick up on this, because while we might be disappointed in our lawmakers for copying and pasting many of their bills from ALEC, it turns out to make it a lot easier for researchers to pick up on instances where ALEC had a hand in state legislation. Please go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your research and how you did this. I thought this was super fascinating, and I think the audience will, too. So, as I mentioned, key service that ALEC provides is providing model bill text to lawmakers that they can then use in their own legislation. And so this provides a relatively straightforward way of figuring out if ALEC had a role in developing legislation in the states. You can employ the same sort of techniques that I use as a college professor to try and pick up on plagiarism to look for instances where lawmakers copied and pasted their bills from ALEC. Working together with an expert computer scientist, I developed a methodology that allowed me to compare every bill that had been introduced or enacted from the 90s to the mid-2000s to ALEC model bills to see if, in fact, lawmakers had copied and pasted those bills. And what I found was that every year, ALEC was uh, successfully introducing several hundred bills across the states and enacting a good portion of those. And I found that the state and lawmakers that 
tended to rely on ALEC weren't a random sample across the states. It tended to be states where lawmakers were paid less, where legislatures met for shorter periods of time, and where they had fewer staffers, which is exactly what we would expect if ALEC were substituting for these sort of resources that lawmakers need. Well, what are the policy priorities that ALEC, generally speaking, was pushing on your run-of-the-mill conservative legislator? Alex's priorities that it has pushed on state legislatures across the country have changed somewhat over time, but generally they have been conservative pro-business priorities, lowering taxes, particularly on businesses, weakening labor unions, especially public sector labor unions, like those representing teachers or those representing other public employees, and pushing back against implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And then lastly, ALEC has been very involved in environmental policy too. As you can imagine, it has received great support from extractive industries like coal companies, energy producers, and has been trying to roll back efforts to address climate change across the states as well. Right. I think the example in how Alec was instrumental in helping Enron basically roll out different legislation across states, that was really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I think the Enron example is nice because it illustrates what businesses get out of Alec. Imagine you're a large national company that has interests in a number of states. That means that each of those states could potentially regulate you. They could impose regulations that are costly, that force you to change the way that you do business. That's a big threat. And if you're a large national company, you know you might have interest in all 50 states. Enter Alec. Alec says, we already have this network of lawmakers that are eager for ideas and want to support broadly conservative priorities. And so that means businesses could join Alec for a fee and have the opportunity to develop the model bills that Alec would then distribute across its state legislative network. In many ways, you could think of it like a utility that each individual business could use, and it would help them change policy across all 50 states. What's interesting about this also is that at the same time, this helped them stay in power. So in what way does pursuing policy also entrench the politics? Yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head um, when it comes to a key strategy that the Troika have used to build conservative power over time. They saw policy, that is the decisions made by state governments, not just as a way to change social or economic outcomes. They saw policy as a way of reshaping political power. They saw policy as a way to make it easier for conservatives to win elections, to hold elected office, and as a way to weaken their political opponents, like above all labor unions. So let me give you a couple examples of how the Troika has used policy in this way to build power. Perhaps no example example is clearer than with legislation on labor unions. And here the Troika has been a longtime promoter of what are known as right to work laws. Those are laws that say that unions in a particular state cannot charge non-members for things that the union does for those non-members. So for instance, collective bargaining. If you're not a member of a union, but there's a union at your job, you would have to pay fees to cover that collective bargaining agreement that you benefit from. But in a right to work state, you don't. So unions often call these laws free rider laws. And ALEC, assisted by 
the State Policy Network and Americans for Prosperity have pushed these laws with great success in recent years as a way of weakening labor unions. They never saw this uh, as being purely an economic issue. When you look through the archives of these organizations, they saw it in political terms. The argument that they made to lawmakers was pass this law and you'll weaken labor unions who are a key contributor for the Democratic Party, for progressive lawmakers. That'll make it easier for you to win elections and hold office in future years. Indeed, I've done research outside of the book State Capture that looks at the political consequences of right to work laws and found that they lower Democratic vote shares across multiple elections, presidential elections, gubernatorial elections, congressional elections, and they make it less likely that unions contribute to the Democratic Party. So there's a real durable shift in political power that accompanies these laws. Shout out to this week's sponsor, The Jordan Harbinger Show. We're so grateful for Jordan's sponsorship this season and his dedication to supporting independent podcasts like ours. Like me, Jordan uses interviews with experts, activists, and everyday people to bring insights and tips on a variety of subjects. He pulls concise wisdom and thought-provoking anecdotes from his guests, which makes his show a fun listen week in and week out. When you head over to his website, you can check out one of his most recent episodes with actionable advice on how to avoid scams, or listen to his interview with Dr. Anders Ericsson on the science of being a professional expert. If you like Future Hindsight, you'll likely enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. I thought it was really surprising, and I had no idea that the... NEA is so instrumental as a labor union in having real civic engagement from teachers at the state level. And that makes perfect sense because teachers are well-educated and they are closely connected to communities so they understand what the issues are. And even, let's say, without legislative experience, they have a much better sense than somebody, let's say, who is conservative and is elected to one of those under-resourced lawmaking positions to advocate on behalf of a community. The Troika has been wanting to undo the labor movement for a super long time, and they have, by and large, succeeded. At the same time, you argue in your book that actually the labor movement has never been as strong as they were made out to be. Tell us why. You mentioned the National Education Association, the National Union of Teachers, and I think it's important to separate out the experiences of private sector workers and their labor unions and those from public sector labor unions. So private sector labor unions got the right to organize and collectively bargain during the New Deal in the 1930s. And the peak of private sector labor union power was really in that immediate post-World War II era. But for a variety of reasons, private sector unions have been in a sharp decline ever since. Government employees, like teachers, have had a different story. They didn't have rights that were passed during the New Deal, and instead they had to turn to the state level for collective bargaining rights. And that process didn't really happen until the 1960s and 1970s. But when it did happen, it happened quite quickly and crucially public sector unions like the teachers unions developed a much stronger political presence 
at the state level than private sector unions because public sector workers like teachers depend on state government for their union rights, for salaries, for education spending. And so the right saw this happening and got worried because here was an organization on the left that was rapidly gaining power. It was a federated organization in the sense that they had a presence in multiple states at the state and local level. And it was not just involved in elections, trying to elect progressive candidates, but it was also involved in policy, trying to change policy in a more leftward direction. And so there was a process of social learning where conservative donors and activists saw the NEA and in many ways were inspired by it to start ALEC. So there's this process of learning from left to right that often happens. And so the right was learning from the NEA in the 1970s and trying to duplicate what the left had. You've seen more recent social learning on the left after conservatives have been more successful in cutting back the power of public sector unions, especially in recent years. The ones that I will flag are state-level cutbacks in public sector bargaining rights, like those championed in Wisconsin and Iowa that were spearheaded by the Troika. And then equally important is a Supreme Court decision named Janus, which is a court case that rules that all public sector workers across the country are now effectively right to work. So that means that they do not have to pay union dues, even if they benefit from the union. And that was a case that was supported by Americans for Prosperity and the State Policy Network. So those are a couple ways that the Troika has weakened the public sector labor movement. So now that the conservative movement is so deeply entrenched at the state level, is it possible to reverse this trend from the left? You speak about the Economic Analysis and Research Network and the State Priorities Partnership as being the closest thing to ALEC and SPN. What do they do and how would it work? So the question of a counterweight on the left and whether or not progressives can manage to retake control of state government and undo the legislation passed by the Troika, it's a really important one. And it's one that hinges, I think, on both planning and luck. On the planning side, progressives need to develop similar networks like the Troika that combine the functions that the Troika has done so well. That means they need to organize lawmakers like ALEC has. They need to give them ideas, support the legislative development process. They need outside organizations like Americans for Prosperity that can sort of be the grassroots muscle, you know, organize rallies and outside pressure on lawmakers. And, and then lastly, we need think tanks that can provide the ideas and evidence that lawmakers need to pursue progressive priorities. When it comes to the organizations that are already existing on the left, we have the strongest counterweight to the state policy network. That is the Economic Analysis and Research Network and the State Priorities Partnership, which are two progressive national networks of state-level think tanks. Now, they aren't funded as generously as the state policy network by any stretch of the imagination, but in many states, they are pretty substantial organizations. When I first started writing the book, I think progressives were way behind on the legislative front, trying to create organizations of lawmakers. But I think in very recent years, the picture has changed. I would point to two organizations, the State Innovation Exchange and Future Now. Both of these are organizations that aim to provide research and ideas to lawmakers. Um, and crucially, I think they've learned from the mistakes of previous progressive failures. For one thing, they are not trying to focus just on the blue states, but they're focused more on purple states and battleground states. These organizations are also learning from what worked for ALEC. 
So for instance, Future Now is building the social networks of lawmakers, which was an innovation that I think Alec did quite well in its early years. I interviewed Alec's early executive director who told me he used to go to the states where he wanted to recruit new lawmakers and find the senior lawmaker that everyone looked up to. And that was the person who Alec tried to recruit to be a state leader who then in turn would recruit more members. And that's exactly what Future Now is doing. So I think that points to a way in which the legislative side has developed more. That's great news. Are these organizations overtly progressive? Because one of the things that I thought was kind of sad was the history about the American Legislators Association, the ALA, and how it really aimed to be strictly bipartisan and neutral and all about good governance. And today, in 2020, it seems so naive, right? Maybe the answer is to be explicitly progressive and not hide it and say, this is what we believe in, just like Alec does. Yes, I think you put your finger on a big long-term change in state politics and in national politics more generally, which is party polarization, that since the 1970s, the parties have pulled away with Democrats becoming more liberal, Republicans becoming more conservative, but they've done so asymmetrically with conservatives in the Republican Party tending to move further to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. In the 1970s, there were many Republicans who were already starting to move to the right, and they felt uncomfortable in the sort of mainstream, good government, bipartisan initiatives that were on the stage at that point in time, like the American Legislators Association and its successors. And so that helps to explain where Alec came from. But crucially, in those early decades, Alec managed to count a number of Republicans and Democrats as members. And that was because you know, the Democratic Party was slower to polarize and polarized uh, uh, more gradually than the Republican Party. And so that gave Alec a distinct structural advantage when it was trying to expand its presence. It was still able to play both sides of the aisle in a way that Alec can no longer do today. And that's going to be harder for progressive organizations to do. Harder, but not impossible. Some of these new organizations like the State Innovation Exchange and Future Now are experimenting with policy ideas that are progressive, but are popular enough that even Republican voters support them. Bills to expand renewable energy or clean water and clean air turn out to just be incredibly popular, regardless of if you're a Democrat or a Republican. And so organizations that are pushing those kinds of proposals can at least claim to be bipartisan in the mass public, if not in the legislature. That's definitely true. I have conservative relatives who are really excited about that kind of legislation. So in researching your book, what has surprised you the most? I think it's the process of what's happened on the left and how reluctant for many years progressives were to learn what worked on the right and at least replicate elements of what worked for the right. I think there's a narrative on the left that progressives can't copy or learn from what the right did because one, they just have more money than the left, or two, that conservatives are sort of ruthlessly focused on reducing the size of government and therefore just have an easier time getting all of their partners on the same page. And that's just harder for the Democratic Party. Both of those things are partially true, but not as much as progressive donors and activists would like to think. So on the money front, it is true that ALEC, SPN, 
Americans for Prosperity have benefited from enormous sums of resources invested by private sector businesses and wealthy donors. And much of that is money that may not be available to progressives, especially the private sector money. But it turns out that there are a number of progressive donors. And if you add up the resources that national groups based in D.C. get, there is a lot of money on the left. It's just not being directed towards state level organization building in a consistent way. So I think the story there is a money mismatch, but it's an allocation problem on the left, not an overall levels problem. The second thing I would mention on the question of whether it's just easier to organize conservatives because they're all on the same page, whereas Democrats, it's like herding cats. There's an element of truth to that. But I think Alex certainly struggled for many years in trying to get social conservatives, libertarians, and businesses all on the same page. Libertarians wanted smaller government, regardless of what that would mean for business subsidies. Many private sector businesses wanted ALEC to deliver business subsidies to them. And religious conservatives, social conservatives wanted to wade in on immigration, gay rights, abortion rights. And those were all things that many private sector businesses were just very uncomfortable with. So, you know, ALEC had to come up with ways of getting those actors on the same page, much in the same way as progressive groups have to figure out how to get you know, unionists on the same page as environmentalists on the same page as racial justice advocates. Right. If I wanted to acquire and exert political power, what are two things that I can do? Oh, that's a great question. So perhaps unsurprisingly, I would say that all Americans should be paying a little more attention, probably a lot more attention to what's happening in their state capital. And I say that for two reasons. One is that One of the reasons why concentrated interests like the Troika can be so successful in shaping policy, often in ways that many people disagree with, it's because people aren't paying attention to what's happening in the state house. And so the more that citizens can hold their legislators accountable, the less likely lawmakers will try and enact policies like those favored by the Troika that run against majority preferences. The other reason is there's just so much more room for change in the short run. Congress is deeply divided and dysfunctional in ways that are going to take significant reform. On the other hand, state lawmakers and state legislatures today could take action on a number of pressing issues, whether it's climate change, access to health insurance, labor union, organizing rights, and related to COVID, making sure that people stay safe during the process of reopening. Those are all things that state legislatures could be addressing now. And so if citizens hold their lawmakers accountable on those issues, we're more likely to see change. That's good advice. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So I concluded the book right at the end of 2017 with a few additional references thrown in there. But that meant that by the time I was writing the book and finishing it, I had missed the Red for Ed protests that were starting to emerge in conservative states in the start of 2018. When we look to those protests, which involved teachers striking, protesting, having these huge rallies to protest low education spending in these very conservative states like West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona, and the fact that they were able to secure 
not just support from their local communities, many of whom were very Republican, but also policy change that started to give me hope about the potential for collective action to reverse a lot of the state capture that we've seen. And my hope for collective action has only increased with the recent protests around racial justice as well. In many ways, there's a through line between those kinds of early strikes that we were seeing across the states and the marches around gun violence led by students and around climate change and the current racial justice protests as well. And I think we're in a period of upheaval where collective action may be able to spur additional political change. And the question in my mind is whether or not that collective action can be translated into longer term institutional changes that will make our democracy and our economy more responsive to Americans. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for your scholarship. Thanks so much for having me on. When I've heard or read about ALEC and AFP in the past, it was always clear to me that they're pursuing conservative interests and promoting right-to-work laws. But until I read Alex's book and spoke to him, I didn't fully understand just how it all hangs together. He really does a superb job in explaining it all and making clear how changing public policy results in changing our politics. In fact, the most important takeaway here is that the policies and decisions by state governments are a sure way to win elections, weaken political opponents, as well as build and entrench political power. I was struck by the collective action education from the left to the right and how the power of the National Education Association, or NEA, the teachers' union, served as a successful model for ALEC. I don't know if public worker unions can be revived, but I do know that if we want our government to work better for everyday Americans, it's imperative to pay close attention to what's happening in local and state politics. The good news is that this is where we have the most power. Next week, our guest is Sabil Rahman. He's president of Demos, a think and do tank dedicated to advancing an emancipatory vision of racial equity, economic inclusion, and deep democracy. He's also associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and co-author of Civic Power, Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis. Democracy is a radical concept, but also a really simple one. And it's really just about this idea that the communities that are most affected should be the ones that are most central to making the decisions. They're the real experts about what is happening in their own communities. And that's a very straightforward, simple idea, but it's actually really radical to put into practice because what that would mean is that we would completely upend how we make our economic policies in this moment to focus much more directly on black and brown communities, on workers. We'll be discussing good governance reform, power building, democratic institutions, and why real democracy actually puts decision-making power in the hands of the communities who are most affected. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.